The WERU Winter Funathon Pledge Drive is coming up on Saturday, February 20th through Saturday morning, February 27th. During this time, we'll be inviting listeners to become new members and sustaining members or to make additional contributions to your community radio station. Listener support is the largest portion of the income that WERU receives, and for that, we are extremely grateful. So stay tuned and enjoy community radio and feel good knowing that it's your support that keeps community radio going strong. That's our Winter Funathon Pledge Drive, February 20th through the 27th. Thank you. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from the Maine Community Foundation, working with donors and other partners to improve the quality of life for all Maine people on the web at maincf.org. It's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming on live, online at weru.org. Talk of the Towns with your host Ron Beard is up next. Good morning and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities to share what works to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is produced with support from Cooperative Extension, the educational outreach program of the University of Maine with offices statewide. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be a benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. And this morning we're um, uh, happy to have some folks in the studio and uh, one by uh, recording who can help us think about the future of the Millinocket-Baxter region. It's a region um, that says long uh, part of the history has been in the uh, pulp and paper and, and timber industry, um, now going through some hard times. Um, there is a proposal for a national park um, in that region, and I'm sure that will enter into our conversation. But I'm happy to welcome uh, Charles Prey. Charlie Prey is former state senator um, from the Millinocket area, um, 1974 to 1992. Welcome to you, Charlie. I'm glad to be here. And Jim Robbins. Jim is the former president of Robbins Lumber Company in Searsmont, and um, we'll hear a little bit more from him later. But welcome to you, Jim. Thank you. Nice to be here. And Ken Olson is with us in the studio, and Ken is a conservation consultant and former president of Friends of Acadia. Welcome to you, Ken. Thanks, Ron. Perhaps each of you could give us a little bit of background on yourselves in that same order, uh, starting with Charlie, um, about yourselves and, and, and how um, you've kind of made your livings in, in your lives. Charlie? Um, well, I'm, I was born in Millinocket. Uh, my parents were from East Millinocket. Uh, my father and my mother was from a Millinocket family. Uh, Moved up to Ripper Genus Dam, T3R11 in the Unorganized Territories, uh, in 1953. Uh, attended a one-room school up there until 1959. Um, and being in the Unorganized Territories, went to high school in MCI and then into Millinocket, eventually at Stearns High School. Uh, continued to operate a family business there up until 2008. Uh, 
catering to the outdoor enthusiasts, fishermen, uh, whitewater rafters, snowmobilers, uh, the, the whole four seasons. Uh, I also uh, dabbled a little bit in politics, as you pointed out. I spent 18 years in the Maine State Senate. Um, I've served in uh, the Clinton administration, the Obama administration in Washington, uh, in the SES, Senior Executive Service, and in both of those. And uh, I served in the Baldacci administration uh, overseeing the final closure of Maine Yankee, uh, so, and which obviously dealt with the uh, federal government quite often in the requirement for the feds to take the nuclear waste, which still sits in Wiscasset. Uh, even That's though a the topic. Federal law we'll says come back to that topic another time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to stay on topic yet. I'll get <laughs> off that. Um, anyway, um, uh, I also uh, serve on the Land Use Planning Commission, the kind of the planning board for the unorganized territories representing Penobscot County. I own property in Piscataquis County, uh, up off in Caribou Lake, off the Golden Road, for those that know that area, uh, about 12 miles further into the woods from Ripagenus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm currently um, a member of the Millinocket Town Council, filling a vacancy uh, that was created a year ago when one individual resigned with a year left in the in the uh, position. Okay, great, good, good uh, round, rounded uh, life, I would say. Um, Jim Robbins, a little bit about your background and and especially uh, thinking about Robbins Lumber as a as a timber user um, and and how how you came to that life. Okay, well, I came to that life because my family's been in the sawmill business since 1881, and uh, we're some of the first settlers in the Waldo County, Knox County area, back in the mid-1700s. I've lived in Maine all my life. I went to the University of Maine, graduated with a degree in forestry, and after that I joined the Navy to see the world and ended up teaching survival in Rangeley, Maine at the survival school over there for a couple of years. After that I came back to the business and... uh, became the sales manager, and my brother and I ran that company for over 40 years. I'm interested in this issue because uh, we get a lot of timber out of northern Maine. We buy logs all over the state of Maine. We saw about 28 million board feet a year. Uh, my children now own and run that company. They're the fifth generation, mm. and we're planning on 11 grandchildren. we get another generation coming right along. But we, um, uh, we pride ourselves in that uh, we own Township 40 up around Nicotowis and Westlake, which we put a conservation easement on there. And uh, in 1996, and uh, that land is now forever open to the public for recreation. And we still own the land, we pay the taxes, and we harvest the timber and manage it sustainably. And uh, we're very, very proud of what we do. Uh, our company uh, recently won the Austin Wilkins Award as the Outstanding Land Manager in Maine. And before that, we uh, won the Arbor Day Foundation for the Outstanding Land Manager in the United States. Mm. So we're proud of what we do. Uh, we love the Maine woods. Uh, my family, we love to fish and hunt and uh, snowmobile and all that, Charlie. And uh, we love to be out in the woods, and we really love the woods. Right. And uh, we earn our living from the woods. Good. And we employ about 105 people, uh, a lot of men and women, in uh, Searsmont. And we make a white pine lumber, and we make ice cream freezer buckets and things my, like that. My son-in-law Clothes is dryers. very happy with his product that he bought from you siding his house. It's wonderful stuff. Good, wonderful. Tell him to buy some more. Okay, I will. <laughs> Ken Olson, a little bit about your background. Uh, I just retired uh, 10 years ago uh, from uh, 30 years in conservation. Um, I ran three nonprofits during that time, Nature Conservancy of Connecticut, American Rivers in Washington, D.C., and uh, 10 years as president of Friends of Acadia. And Friends of Acadia is uh, an outfit that helps Acadia National Park by raising private funds and doing other things related to protection of the park. And uh, 
I've been out of it, as I say, for a decade, and I'm enjoying retirement. Great. What, what kinds of things are you doing in retirement, Ken? Well, I was on the board of the Natural Resources Council of Maine, which has had a big hand in uh, advancing this national park issue that we're going to discuss, and uh, have also done some volunteerism around the centennial of Acadia National Park, which right. is this year, and it's also the centennial of the National Park Service. Big right. year for national parks. Right. Be a great time to have a new national park. <laughs> we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Perhaps. Um, I want to introduce um, um, our speaker by by uh, um, recording, and that's Kathy Johnson. Kathy is the senior staff attorney and the Northwoods project director um, for the Natural Resources Council of Maine. Uh, Kathy attended Yale University, then transferred to College of the Atlantic, where she received her BA in 1974. She's worked for the National Park Service, U.S. Forest Service, and U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Um, she got her JD from the University of Maine School of Law in 1983, and then uh, joined Natural Resources Council in 1990. And just a word that the just to, um, she isn't going to say it because I edited that out. Um, but the Natural Resources Council of Maine is a nonprofit membership organization protecting, restoring, and conserving Maine's environment. So we'll hear that uh, first tape. And I asked her the question: um, What um, what does she see in the Millinocket uh, region now? But basically, what you have in the Katahdin region are communities that were completely dependent on paper mills for over 100 years. And suddenly, their major and really only major employer in town is gone. And now you have communities that really have no major employers. The hospital is the biggest employer in town now. And in, in that period of time, um, what about the forest practices that you were seeing? Well, ironically, um, 25 years later, the issues are coming back around. When I started in 1990, we were still dealing with the um, aftermath of the spruce bugworm epidemic that wiped out huge uh, parts of Maine's forest in the late 70s and the 80s. And we passed Maine's Forest Practices Act uh, just before I started at NRCM in 1989. And that has had an effect on forest management practices in the Northwoods. Um, but now, 25 years later, the spruce bugworm, which is a native pest um, and runs in sort of 35-year uh, cycles, is starting to come back. It's in Quebec, and, and it looks like it's uh, going to head down towards, um, towards Maine. For better or for worse, Maine's forest looks very different than it did in the 70s and 80s. Then we had huge swaths of spruce and fir. Um, that were just the right age for a spruce budworm to chomp on. Um, as a result of the forest practices that have happened in the last 30 years, uh, we've actually lost several million acres of spruce fir. It's been converted into hardwood, which the spruce budworm does not enjoy. So the, the epidemic that we're likely to have, the infestation that we're likely to have um, in the next few years will almost certainly be much less than it was back in the in the 70s and 80s. In terms of other forest practices, the big change that I've seen is that um, a number of landowners have gone through a certification process, which are voluntary um, reviews of their forest management practices. Um, there are actually two competing programs that are active in Maine. One is the Forest Stewardship Council, which is the one that we are very supportive of that looks at all aspects of the forest, sustainable timber harvesting, wildlife habitat, and the impact of the forest management activities on the neighboring communities. Um, there is also an industry-sponsored program called the Sustainable Forestry Initiative, which um, 
looks at similar things but does not have uh, teeth in their standards the way that the Forest Stewardship Council program does. But we do have millions of acres now that are covered by the Forest Stewardship Council uh, certification and more land that's um, covered by the industry program. And, and many lands are actually partic participate in both of the programs. How about conservation in that, in that region? Um, what have you seen tr trend-wise that way? Conservation has exploded. Um, when the paper companies owned the land, you couldn't find an acre of land to buy for conservation. But starting in 1999, um, when South African pulp and paper, SAPI, put their lands on the market without having a buyer, that was, that was a tsunami in Maine's Northwoods. Never before had that happened. Previously, when lands had traded, changed hands, one paper company would line up a deal with another one, and it would all happen quietly behind closed doors, and then we'd suddenly hear that there was a new landowner. SAPI put their land on the open market and for the highest bidder, and since then, all of the other paper companies, except for Irving, have done the same. So the land has been sold um, on the open market to the highest bidder, mostly financial uh, owners have bought it, investors, pension funds, those kinds of folks. Um, and it's been broken up into many more parcels. Um, in the, when I started in 1990, there were maybe eight or nine large landowners that owned the vast majority of the 10 million acres in Maine's unorganized townships. Now there are 100. So some of that land is going for recreational purposes, private development, those kinds of things? It's going for all sorts of things. Uh, Plum Creek, of course, is probably well known to your uh, listeners as the large, they proposed the largest development in Maine history around Moosehead Lake, and they've gotten permission to do that, although they have not actually started doing any development. Um, a number of lands have been sold to what we call trophy home owners, uh, people who buy a relatively large tract of land, put a big house in it, and put up no posted, posted no trespassing signs around them. So that's kind of the development side, and then there have been other subdivisions that have happened here and there. Um, in the late 80s, early 90s, we had a big run of landowners who were buying up sort of 1,000, 2,000 acre parcels and cutting them up into 40 acre lots. But fortunately, the legislature uh, ratcheted down on that loophole, and that's not happening uh, anymore, so that's good. So that's the development side. On the conservation side, uh, all of this change in ownership has provided huge opportunities. So we've got huge blocks of land that have been purchased um, primarily by private entities. The Nature Conservancy, the Appalachian Mountain Club have both bought parcels in the tens of thousands or in uh, Nature Conservancy's case, hundreds of thousands of acres. So we do have a good chunk of land that's in conservation ownership. Um, before, um, 1990, we had less than 5% of Maine's North Woods in conservation ownership. Now we have about 9% that's in conservation ownership. That includes both public and private. Um, and we have an additional 11% that is covered by conservation easements. These are agreements that, legally binding agreements that landowners enter into that um, removes the development potential on the land but leaves the land in private ownership so the landowners continue to manage it for industrial, commercial, timber harvesting. 
that was Kathy Johnson, um, who is the uh, Northwoods Project Director of the Natural Resources Council of Maine. And by the way, she couldn't um, be with us in the studio live because um, every winter at this time she heads up to Baxter in and, and a winter camping trip, and she's been doing that for 20 years. So I didn't dare um, uh, try to uh, change her schedule for that. Um, uh, in the studio with us are uh, Charles Prey, who's uh, um, from the Millinocket area, former state senator, Jim Robbins, former president of Robbins Lumber Company, and Ken Olson, conservation consultant and former pre- president of Friends of Acadia. So you've heard Kathy's kind of description, but each of you have a perspective on some of the changes that have happened both in the Millinocket area and in, in forest practices. So I'd like to spend the next couple of minutes um, from each of you getting uh, what you see in addition to what Kathy might have said, or you may disagree with Kathy on some of those things, but what, what are the changes that you've seen in the Millinocket um, Northwoods area um, that then bear on where the economy is now? Jim, you, you know you've had, you've had um, you've been buying timber up that way, um, but you also um, had a hand in the first conservation easement up that way. Right. I'd like to point out it's not just conservation agencies that have done conservation. Mm-hmm. You know, millions of acres in northern Maine now are green certified. You know, like Irving's Land, uh, Seven Islands, Huber, and so forth. Uh, they're doing a great job managing their land. Uh, when it comes to it, she's talking about all that land was sold off. Uh, that land, it was, it did all change hands. In fact, our company was one of them that bought one of those townships. We bought Township 40 up on Nicotowas Lake from the old diamond holdings. And um, I believe that uh, with the uh, certified land that's going on now, the, um, the land management is much, much better than it used to be. And uh, I think it's healthy that there are more landowners now than there used to be. You know, having, uh, as she said, 100, I'm sure it's more than that. Uh, landowners rather than just a few big paper companies because I think now that the landowners are managing the land for the best value of growing the wood, not just necessarily growing it for paper fiber. And uh, she's right about the paper companies leaving Millinocket area. In fact, the whole Penobscot River region has, has lost five mills. But it's still a very viable industry. In fact, as we speak, uh, down east at Woodland Paper Company, they're putting in two brand new machines right now. And uh, that wood that used to go to the Millinocket mills is now going to other mills in the state. And uh, it has been a tough time for the paper companies, no doubt about it, for a lot of reasons, which probably ought to be another subject for another day because mm-hmm. we don't have time sure. to discuss all that. But uh, the spruce budworm is coming again, just like she said. And you want to remember when that forest all dies, it's, it's a big forest fire waiting to happen. If you don't have, it's that dead timber. Mm-hmm. Charlie, what changes have you seen um, growing up in that region um, from when you were growing up and attending a one-room school to what exists now? Well, of course, you, you need to remember that uh, Mellanocket, East Mellanocket communities were created by the paper industry. It was uh, called the Magic City because out of the wilderness, uh, a company hired thousands of people to mm-hmm. go there and build these paper mills. But there's also older communities in that general region, the Patton, Stacyville, uh, those communities that were always tied to the logging industry. Uh, if you go back historically upon the West Branch watershed, uh, uh, those dams go back into being approved by the Massachusetts legislature. Uh, back into the, if you go back, to, if you go to the state law library, you can look up into the 1830s and 40s and the references to anything before that. You have to go down to the Massachusetts legislature mm. to get the uh, older history of logging out of that region. Uh, so logging goes back quite a while. As a matter of fact, some of that land. Um, in the Chisuncook Village area was granted to uh, people who enlisted into the service for the Civil War. They were given acreage up there. Uh, And also, if you go back, there's a number of farms back in the uh, 
early 1800s. Uh, a lot of that land used to be uh, farm areas that uh, supported the logging industries. They would grow the crops and stuff that they would feed, sell to the logging companies to feed their workers and stuff. Uh, and of course, more recently in the last 150 years, logging companies came in. Evolution takes place all the time. Uh, and we're not, obviously, right now it's the paper industry, but I can remember Dexter Shoe moving out of Dexter. I can remember the textiles leaving Lewiston and Auburn. All of these areas have that, uh, go through that some type of change at some point. Uh, the, the question that I have in reference to what's happening is you have a community, you have several communities, the Millinocket, East Millinocket, obviously devastated by the loss of the paper mills that uh, uh, was there. Uh, the stabilization of their economy now having changed. The evolution is taking place. The area is very uh, enthused about promoting tourism. Uh, they support that uh, very strongly and want to try find ways to do that, uh, to expand it beyond what it's currently got. Uh, very optimistic uh, and moving forward with it. It's a new era, hmm. and we'll... We're feeling our way along. Sure. Um, Ken Olson, you've long been associated with, with the national park concept. Um, tell us a little bit about what, um, what your interest has been there and maybe a little bit about what gave rise to a group called Friends of Acadia, which kind of supports the, on the private side, supports what the public side is doing. Um, I should first say that I'm not speaking for Friends of Acadia. No, I understand uh, that. Okay. I understand that. Um, but uh, my own involvement with national parks has been one of uh, when my grandfather took me at age six uh, to Maine to camp, mm. and that evolved into an interest in our backcountry all throughout New England. As my mother says, uh, I left home at age six. <laughs> and that had a profound impact on where I went professionally, including into conservation. And uh, moving into uh, Friends of Acadia in 1995, I found a really interesting concept. That was the idea of private funds supporting public institutions such as national parks. It's something we're familiar with with hospitals and and museums and universities and so forth, but not so much with uh, federal lands in this case. And uh, Friends of Acadia now has a, about $25 million in support funds that are invested and gives away right now about a million and a half to the park and to the surrounding communities for park-consistent projects. And uh, that's a model that can be useful uh, anywhere in the national park system. Mm -hmm. So let's let's um, move into the question of a, of a proposed national park. What is actually being proposed at this time? And in the past, we've seen other proposals that talked about making a national park out of the whole Northwoods. We're not talking about that now. What's being proposed now? Who, who can kind of describe that, that uh, proposal? We don't know. It keeps changing. Okay, I mean, but... If you want to go back to, to what uh, uh, Ms. Quimby proposed originally, okay. uh, her initial proposal was a pristine wilderness that uh, would return us to before the European invasion and settlement of, of the North American continent. Uh, and now it's talking, they're promoting it more as an economic development tool uh, that would have um, a quarter of a million people coming up, uh, 125,000, I'm not sure what the numbers are, but it's constantly changing it. But this it, is, this is I'm, I guess I'm trying to get to, um, Roxanne Quimby and her, her family have a, 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 a discrete amount of land 58,000 acres, is that about right? Well, the, the proposal is actually pretty solid. Uh, it's, uh, it's land that would be gifted by the Quimby family, which is, in this case, called Elliottsville Plantation Incorporated. It's kind of a land trust, which has been uh, collecting property for eventual public purposes. And the future 
property, if gifted to the United States government, would consist of two elements, a okay. national park on the west side of the East Branch Penobscot River, which borders, is adjacent to, smack dab, Katahdin uh, and Baxter State Park. And then on the east side of the river would be several properties that would comprise a national recreation area, which is different from a national park, but also run in this case by the National Park Service that would allow snowmobiling and hunting and some of the other traditional uses there. Uh, as I understand it, it will be capped at a total of about 150,000 acres, and any land that's not been acquired uh, privately uh, would not be acquired uh, unless there's willing sellers. So that's that's what I was trying to get at. There is a, a discrete proposal, um, and I, I think our congressional delegation has um, weighed, or some of them have weighed in on that particular proposal. But um, um, Charlie and, and Jim, you're opposed to the notion of a national park well, in that region. Uh, you know, um, Jim, you said you love that national parks. You've been to many of them. Yes, right. I'm not opposed to national parks. I've been to 17 national parks, and everyone I went to them, like Yellowstone, Glacier, Yosemite. Absolutely spectacular. Mm. But this area is not spectacular. What we're talking here is tying up 150,000 acres of working woodland. It was working woodland, uh, and most of it is until, except for the part that Roxanne Quimby bought. And I'd like to point out uh, also that um, Kathy Johnson said to tell about how Plum Creek wanted to put in a big development. She forgot to mention they also did put in place a 400,000-acre conservation easement, biggest conservation easement ever done in the state of Maine. But anyway, the, out of that park, um, there are many reasons I oppose it, but my first reason for opposing it is out of the 150,000 acres, you know, they've arbitrarily drawn a line around this given area, 150,000 acres. They only own 87,500 acres of it, and that means 62,500 acres are owned by many, many other people who do not want to see their land taken by the federal government. I mean, how bad is that? I mean, there's the equivalent of three townships that she's trying to give to the federal government that she doesn't own. Now, granted, she can't give it to them, she don't own it, but they can take it perhaps by eminent domain. And these people are very, very worried. Sure. I mean, how would you like it if your family had owned this land for many generations and somebody just comes along and arbitrarily says, we're going to give it to the national so, government? Okay, so, uh, but we have a, a, a nearby example that wasn't created by eminent domain in Acadia. So uh, how do we square these different versions of how national parks come to be? That was all land given. That's right. But these people don't want to give their land. They, they've owned that land for generations and they want to continue to own that okay. land. And to me it is absolutely arrogant on the part of the uh, Quimby family and the National Parks of it to try to put that land into a national park or a national recreation area when they don't own it. That's, that's absolutely wrong. Sure. Can, if I could... Um, my opposition is more along the line that, that that I don't see anything unique about the particular area, and it is a, a, adjacent to Baxter State Park, Katad. Uh, um, the East Branch, which is referenced, is already in a conservation easement and, and is protected. The state of Maine has been one of the leading states in the country. I was a co-sponsor of Lands for Maine's Future. I support the idea of taking unique land, setting it aside for future generations. Uh, I'm in favor, I favored the conservation easements and protection of the West Branch of the Penobscot River. Um, you know, these things are things that the state of Maine have been doing. When, when I served in Washington, D.C., uh, I did intergovernmental affairs for the U.S. Department of Energy. Um, I dealt with governors and state legislators. The Department of Energy owns a lot of land out west. Uh, and the responsibility of those federal agencies is to meet the federal responsibilities. 
the advantage of having the Lands for Maine's future of the, of the State Department of Conservation entering into uh, uh, conservation agreements and easements is to the advantage of Maine's people. Uh, understand we all have a desire to have some degree of protection of these resources for future generations and the use of that land. The principle, you know, there's no Rupagenus Gorge, there's no Gulf Hagus, there's no, there's, I think this land is spectacular. I think the whole state is. You go from western Maine on the New Hampshire border all the way over to the New Brunswick border. Uh, I think when I, my state, my state Senate district at one time was about uh, 25 miles from the, uh, from New Brunswick border and about uh, 28 miles from the uh, Canadian border on the, on the west. Uh, so it's a huge state, a lot of gorgeous areas uh, that need protection, and, and the state of Maine is doing a good job at it. So the, one of the reasons that we're talking about a national park is for uh, the possible economic benefits. But can, nowhere in the can, federal legislation well, is a park an economic development, the National Park Program, an no, economic development tool. No, but I guess I, I'm just uh, thinking about the create, concept. It happens can? to create huge economic benefits as just as a fact, whether that's a purpose of the parks or not. That's understood, I think, well. Um, I want to just go back to what Jim was saying about eminent domain. Mm. And uh, there is no plan for eminent domain. This is a privately purchased uh, park and privately donated. And if willing sellers do not want to sell, the Park Service is not going to buy it. It's mm. as simple as that. That's the history, the history of the National Park Service. I've dealt with them when I was doing land acquisition, both for the Nature Conservancy and for the Conservation Fund. And we know how these things work, and it is not an eminent domain possibility. And to raise that, I think, is a disservice to the people in the north because it creates fear that should not be there. So the the current proposal is for um, – there, there is a kind of a, a sense of a boundary, but you're yes. saying this is only on a willing buyer, willing seller. Absolutely. Yes, and let me also address here this business about the quality of this place. Uh, you know, Jim, if, if – if, uh, I mean, Charlie, if this place, if the United States had been settled from the West Coast to the East Coast, a lot of the places, including Maine, might now be a whole national park. The quality is that high. When we think about national parks, we tend to think of the 50 or 60 that have the designation national park. The national park system has 409 units. The smallest unit in the national park system is 0.02 acres. <laughs> it's called Kosciuszko. The largest is over 12 million acres. That's Wrangell. And there's everything in between. There are cultural parks. There are 34 different types of national parks, national parkways, national monuments, national battlefields, national recreation areas, and so on. So when you look at the quality of this area and ask whether it fits into the mosaic of a national park, it certainly does. Yeah. It's top-notch. What are some of the qualities that you see in this region that, that attract people now? Um, why would someone go, um, besides going to Baxter, perhaps climbing um, Katahdin, what else is there in, in the region? Um, you've had a, a, a business, uh, Charlie. Um, what, what brings people to that region? Well, you know, uh, in, in our day, uh, hunting season, those who came in to hunt, uh, we had at one period the shortest time a customer being filled Mm -hmm. They were coming to us for 27 years. The longest party had been coming for us 39 consecutive years. A lot of people from the northeast, from Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Massachusetts, depending on the sport, uh, that, that would come up and recreate and enjoy the outside, the outdoors area. Uh, obviously, when whitewater rafting came, uh, people from pretty much the northeast came. We had people from Europe coming, uh, and they still do. 
it, it is a world, the West Branch of Penobscot is a world-class fly fishing river. Uh, and uh, a high-end clientele comes in. A lot of professional people uh, do. If, but if the National Park Program is going to be advocated as an economic development tool, then I suggest we probably ought to put a national park in all seven northern counties because they're all economically depressed if that's the intent. You know, part of this whole thing, going back to, as, as Jim said, um, is, is an individual who has been very fortunate. Uh, Roxanne Quimby was a constituent of mine before she started her Burt's Bees. And I remember when Lucas and his sister were probably one or two years old when I, I first met them going door-to-door campaigning. Great success story. Uh, she had a main business. She moved the business to uh, to the Carolinas. And the wealth that she's accumulated has allowed her to come back and basically say, here's a lot of land that I can buy very cheaply. She's from Western Mass. She could have bought land in Western Mass, but it's much more expensive there. So Maine had cheap land she could buy. Uh, her intentions are good and the desire, but I think Maine, the state of Maine, has the programs uh, that 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 land could be entered into if that's the personal, her desire as a personal landowner. But to go into an area and tell people, and I have to agree with Jim, if you have enough money to buy the land all around somebody, you force them to having limited options as to what they can do with their land. I'm going to get a comment from Jim, then we're going to go to Kathy Johnson, a very brief um, segment of her interview, and then we're going to open up our phone lines. Um, so, but uh, Jim. Uh, two things I want to address. One is the eminent domain question. We have in our possession a letter from the Department of Interior to landowners around Everglades National Park, threatening them that if they didn't sell their land willingly, that they would take it by eminent domain. We have a copy of that letter. I've given it to Senator Angus King. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that is an issue. Uh, and But when you talk about disservice um, to the people, these people that are proposing this pack know that this area does not have any particularly spectacular beauty. That's why every time they show an advertisement, they always show pictures of Mount Katahdin because all of the beauty in that area is already protected in Baxter National Park, and Katahdin is the beauty of that area. And to me, it's doing a disservice to the people to keep showing Mount Katahdin in their advertisements. But you, you said yourself, Nicktowis Lake was, was, is, a, is a place of beauty. Right? That's just another... Absolutely, and everybody can enjoy it for nothing. It doesn't have to be a national park. Okay. Uh, Ken Olson, uh, very briefly, and then we're going well, to go well, to Well, briefly, uh, Katahdin is the scenic climax of Maine, so it's not unusual that this photo is taken, especially in regard to this park proposal. And let's, let's think about Acadia National Park. If there were not photos of the ocean, uh, it would be a different national park. And if there are not that free access to the Atlantic Ocean, it would be a different national park. So uh, understanding what's beautiful next door is a pretty important thing about a park. You're and I see those to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We're talking about the future of the Millinocket Baxter region, including the potential of a national park. Um, in the studio with us are uh, Charlie Prey, Jim Robbins, and Ken Olson. We're going to go now to a brief um, segment of an interview I conducted with Kathy Johnson of the Natural Resources Council of Maine. Well, most people I talk to outside the region say, it's a no-brainer, isn't it? 
We have a donor who wants to donate land and money for an endowment, wants to donate the land to the American people. It's a spectacular piece of property. Um, it has, it's bisected by the east branch of the Penobscot River, which is, I believe, one of our most beautiful rivers in the state. I've paddled most of them. And the east branch of the Penobscot has incredibly gorgeous whitewater, beautiful waterfalls, and also beautiful flat water with great wildlife habitat where you can see moose and beavers and all sorts of, of uh, wildlife, other birds. Um, it's, the property is just east of Baxter State Park. There are opportunities there to go hiking. You know, there are a lot of people who love to go camp in their tent at Baxter and climb Mount Katahdin, but there's a whole nother huge crowd of people that wouldn't dare, you know, don't have no interest and don't want to get on paper company roads with those big logging trucks and go sleep in a tent on the ground. They don't want to do that. So the National Park provides an opportunity for people who would like to go to the Northwoods, would like to see Mount Katahdin, would like to paddle on a river, would like to see moose and other birds and wildlife that you see in the Northwoods. But right now, it's not easy for somebody from outside of, of Maine to do that because, you know, we live in Maine, all of us have our Delorem atlases and we open them up and we get in our cars and we drive on all those gravel roads. But people from outside the state don't know how to do that. And a national park would provide an, an easy, safe opportunity for people to get acquainted with what Maine's Northwoods have to offer. How about the, the private sector? What, um, what do you see as potential in recreation and tourism in the private sector if there were to be a national park? Well, there's huge potential. The, the vision for the national park is that all of the infrastructure for, for tourists would be outside of the park itself. So there's opportunity for lodging and restaurants and retail, outfitters, guides, shuttle services, all of those um, kinds of services that visitors to a national park um, would use. Um, those are all opportunities for family-owned businesses in the area surrounding the proposed national park. A segment of an interview I conduct with Kathy Johnson of the Natural Resources Council of Maine. You're tuned to Talk of the Towns, and we are going to open up our phone lines um, at this point and take comments, questions, um, opinions. 1-866-625-9378. 625-9378. Reactions to Kathy's uh, talk, Ken? And, and Well, I want to go back to something that was unfinished okay. with, uh, with Charlie, and that uh -huh. was this concept of uh, if we can have one in, in the present area, we can have one in all seven counties. That's if the public wants it. And let's be clear that the National Park here is not being proposed by the National Park Service. It's being proposed and supported by the public. There have been four polls that I know about that are consistent from the year 2011 and most recently three in 2015, which show the same responses, and that is that two to one, the people in Maine want this park. It's greater in the south. It's two to one in the congressional district of my rep, Bruce Poliquin, who's your rep as well. Two to one. That's a political landslide. The people want something. It should be expressed, and it has been. Let's go to a, a comment from Paul from Millinocket by phone, and then we'll take a comment from um, Jim Robbins. Go ahead, Paul. You're on the line. Yes, go ahead. Maybe not. <laughs> we've we've lost him. Maybe he'll come back. Uh, Jim Robbins. Yeah, I'd like to address that question of polling. Uh, recently, uh, East Millinocket and Medway uh, voted as to whether or not they wanted the pack. And in a debate with Lucas St. Clair, he told me that 67% of that people in that area supported the pack. 
You know, when the vote came out, 72% of the people voted against the PAC. So I don't believe this polling that we're hearing for one minute. And when you talk about the economic benefits of a PAC and all the jobs it's going to create, you know, they're telling, the proponents saying it's going to create 400 to 1,200 jobs. Well, number one, they're basing that study on a full build-out of a PAC like, like Acadia. This is going to be a wilderness pack, from all we know. But let's look at Baxter right next to it. This proposed pack is going to be 150,000 acres of the two combined areas. Baxter pack has 200,000 acres. It, the, the beauty there is 10 times what it is in this proposed area, yet they employ 21 people full-time and 40 people seasonally. In the meantime, you take 150,000 acres of timberland out of production, the main forest service figures that that is going to eliminate 338 jobs because that wood won't be going to the mills. Now, granted, it's not going to mills in Millinocket, but it's going to all the other mills in the state of Maine. You've got to look at the, the whole state, how it affects the state, the whole state economically. Let's, I think we have Paul back from Millinocket. Go ahead with your question or comment, please. Hi, good morning. Um, I've got a couple of thoughts here. So first off, uh, East Branch of the Penobscot, beautiful place, beautiful river. I've paddled it myself. Uh, do you folks realize that it's already held in easement by the state of Maine, that it doesn't need any further protection, it's already protected? We've, we've commented on that, yes. Go ahead. Okay. Um, also, one thing that's not uh, spoken about in the, in the media at all is the fact that uh, there are parcels within the uh, proposed acquisition lands there that are already owned outright by the state of Maine as a Wasatacook unit that is owned by the Bureau of Parks and Lands. There's also the Hunt Farm track, which is uh, it's a state-held easement. And essentially, if uh, this was given to the federal government, all that, uh, all the effort from Lands for Man's Future and the Forest Legacy Fund that were used to purchase those easements and lands, it was all done for naught. That's our tax dollars that, is, that have been used uh, and then basically just given away to the federal government. I, I, I would imagine if people knew that, that there'd be a lot of irate uh, taxpayers. Thanks for your comments today, Paul. We've got another call from Lincolnville. Let's go ahead and take that call, and then we'll get some comments from our guests. Go ahead. Hi, this is Andy from Lincolnville. Welcome. Um, a great program this morning. Thank you very much for, for doing this. Uh, you know, as I listened to one of the last comments from Mr. Olson, he said, take away the ocean, and Acadia doesn't have very much. <laughs> um, and I think that's part of the argument that Jim's talking about. Uh, the recreation uh, in that area, you know, is, is Katahdin. Most of it's flat land. There's a river that most of its access has been cut off by Roxanne over the last 10, 15 years, so it's being used less and less. And there's no promise that the National Park Service would... Uh, somehow create more access to that river. Uh, there's plenty of places to put in. Uh, there's just no place to put out that's you know, convenient for day trips or for families. Um, and the economic benefit, you know, the, Mr. Olson made the comment that by a two-to-one margin to support it, but the reality is that the local communities, who Secretary Salazar said three years ago would make the decision, voted against it by a two-to-one margin. And I think that the reason for that is that they're the ones most impacted. They've taken the hardest look at this. Now, Roxanne commissioned a Headwaters report, which stated all of the economic benefits. But there's two contradictions on that the press doesn't get into very often. Roxanne has put forth 
a backwoods camping experience. It was just stated a couple minutes ago that, by Kathy Johnson in that last interview, that all the amenities would be outside of the park. But the Headwaters report called for a full-service park like the six-pier parks that it used. That's a huge contradiction. You, you can't use job claims based on full-service parks when your intention is to have a backwoods park. And well, if we also look at that Headwaters report in those pier regions, none of them bear any resemblance to the Millinocket region. One of them, Congaree, is 13 miles from Columbia, South Carolina, with a population of 1 million. So I, I take it, sir, I take it that you're opposed to the notion of a national park in this area. <laughs> if we're going to have a debate, let's have a debate based on real facts, oh, not well. on a press release issued by Roxanne. So Thank you. Thank I, I do have a question. Okay. I have a question. This would be for, uh, for Charlie. And uh, basically, you know, why did the people of the Millinocket region vote this down? Okay. Thanks so much for your call this morning. Charlie, what, what's your sense? Well, my, my, my sense, and I also did uh, my background, my education is political science, so mm -hmm. I do, and I've done a lot of consulting in it. I, I did a polling of the Patton, Shinpon, Mount Chase area, and they also fall, fell into the uh, three to one against uh, in the high 70 percentile in the Patton, in the northern end of, of, of that area in opposition. I think a lot of it is the way that it's been approached, that it's kind of somebody from outside coming in and saying, we're going to change your whole culture and your whole being, your existence of why you people have stayed here and lived here. Uh, it's kind of an attitude thing. You, you go back to the Forbes uh, magazine interview when Roxanne kind of unkindly described the area. Um, wasn't beneficial for her in that cause. That may have had some impact. Um, but, you know, i got to go back to the polling question, too. In concept, in general, you talk to people from away, southern Maine or whatnot, and you say, what about this idea of a national park? And, well, they said, none of that land's being protected. It's being overdeveloped. It's being overcut. And then you should sit down and you start to explain to them about the Land Use Planning Commission, the Lands for Maine's Future, the conservation easement. Oh, I didn't know about that. When you start getting into the specifics of it, that whole opinion changes somewhat. When you do, you know, they, they recently had a uh, press conference at the uh, state house where they had thirteen thousand signatures. The Nature Conservancy's got sixteen thousand members. They only got thirteen thousand signatures, of which the majority were for people from out of the state of well, Maine. Let's get a comment from Ken Olson, and then we're going to go back yeah, to the phone I, about this uh, this plebiscite that uh, was a straw vote in. Uh, East Millinocket and Medway, um, we have spoken with people who say that there is quite a bit of intimidation up there. And I think this should be on the table in an open debate about this. And I'll give you an example. Um, I spoke with a hotelier on the day of this press conference in Bangor who, with his wife, was going to buy a hotel in the East Millinocket, Millinocket, Medway area. They were prepared to buy. They went up. They were dealing with realtors. They saw all the signs that said no park. They talked with people. They realized that the atmosphere was not conducive to economic development, even because of the attitude of this park. Whether people came out in droves, they didn't to this vote. Some people didn't vote because they didn't want to be intimidated. They didn't want to be seen, for example, at the polls, as we've recently seen, by a group that comes in and now photographs for whatever its particular agenda happens to be. So there is intimidation around people. The objective polling, which people are responding to anonymously, anonymously over the phone, 
from firms that include Republican firms are telling us that they want a national park. That is irrefutable. Let's but go but back, I didn't go, argue that. Let's go I, back to the phones and take a call from Peter from Old Town, and then we'll get some comments from our guests. Peter, go ahead with your co question or comment, please. Good morning. Um, I have a, a quick comment and then a question for Mr. Robbins. Uh, the comment is, is that uh, I think the eminent domain uh, question is an important issue because intent versus what actually be, becomes legislated are two different things. And my comment is, is that you know, we need to bear in mind that Acadia National Park has eminent domain authority within its boundaries, and the Appalachian Trail here in Maine had eminent domain authority as well. So you don't know what's going to happen until you see legislation. My question, though, is, is for Mr. Robbins, who pointed out that he's been to a number of national parks. I have as well, many of those western parks that are truly spectacular, and my impression at least is, is that the vast majority of those gateway communities those to, to those parks are tiny little affairs that are seasonal and, and much smaller than Millinocket, and I think we can do better, but I wonder if Mr. Robbins had that same impression or something different. Absolutely. Uh, I went to Glacier National Park a couple of years ago, and on the east side of Glacier Park, I mean, there's a village there of about maybe 100 people living there, no economic activity at all, even though a, a ton of people go through there to a much more spectacular park than this would be. But I'd like to address uh, Ken's uh, point about fear at the polls. And I agree with 100%. In this country, there's no place for anybody threatening anybody on no matter what the voting issue is. But believe me, Ken, that was going on on both sides. In fact, Roxanne Quimby told the snowmobile club up there she cut off the trails and she refused to open it unless they supported her in the pack effort. I call that putting admonition uh, people. You know, that, that's not right either. Right. So it's, it's happening on both sides and it shouldn't happen on either side. one 625 we have another phone call, I believe. We'll take that phone call and then go back to our guests here in the studio. No, we need a, another minute. Uh, uh, floor is on to Ken Olson. Yeah, I just want to address the, uh, the question of uh, eminent domain again. The, uh, the caller points out correctly that the, uh, that the park and the National Park Service have authority of eminent domain. There's no question about that. The reason that exists in the laws is because it's in the Constitution and you can't write something unconstitutional into park legislation. That's the reason that language is in there. It isn't used. Mm. It is used. I th I think it we is have, not used. I think we not in today's society. Is it yes, used. it is. No, it, it is, is used. Let's no, it's used for public. It's used so for we, highways, we know, as Donald We know Trump that's an us. issue. If we're gonna, if we're gonna have any resolution of this, we're gonna have to think about that. Let's take another phone call. This is Doug from Bangor, and uh, we'll see what his question or comment is, and then uh, get some comments from our guests. Doug, are you there? Yes, I am. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm curious. Uh, which of you, in the you know, it's a theoretical question, but say the uh, the uh, Appalachian Mountain Club or the Nature Conservancy wanted to uh, include their large holdings that they've preserved uh, in the area. If they wanted to include that in the park, uh, how would you view that? Okay, thanks for your question. Um, we'll see if we've got some um, comments from guests. So this is, again, this is a theoretical question, but um, what if other large um, holders wanted to add their, their lands to this proposed national park? 
Well, that's, that's a big part of the problem here, is that you may remember, I'm sure you remember, Restore wanted a 3.2 million acre mm -hmm. national park, and don't forget that Roxanne Quimby used to be on their board. She isn't now, but she used to be. But once you get the footprint of a national park established, there's no question in my mind they're going to try to expand it, and those areas would be logical areas to do that. And a perfect example of this is going on is what just happened on Scudit Peninsula. You know, in 1986, an agreement was made between the national park and all the surrounding towns that the boundaries would be set at that date and that they would never expand beyond that point. And lo and behold, just just a few months ago, they expanded by 1,400 acres on Scudic Peninsula with no congressional permission. They didn't even consult with their own advisory board on it. They just arbitrarily expanded by another 1,400 acres. And I believe they would do the same thing once this footprint is established in northern Maine. Okay. Jim, thanks. Um, Ken Olson. The uh, Scudic uh, situation has been going on for 20 years. It's been going on for 20 years, and the public supported for about 15 of those years the acquisition of Scudic. It was gifted to the National Park, and there was a private seller involved. What happened at the end was a technical glitch, and we will have this thing designated by Congress soon. I'm pretty sure of that. Let's take one more call from uh, Jason in Presque Isle. Go ahead with your question or comment, please, Jason. Yes, uh, this is back to the eminent domain issue. Uh, someone referred earlier to the fact that it hasn't been used before in national parks, and I think case history is pretty clear here that it's been used both in the acquisition of lands for Redwood National Forest or the Cypress National Preserve. Uh, it's also been used in the uh, the Rock Creek uh, National Park and, and also Everglades. Just like to hear comments on that. Okay. Well, I think I'm going to I'm going to limit our comments because I've got another question if I could put to our guests. And this is quoting from an article recently in the Portland Press Herald, and uh, so in response to interest in that uh, has been expressed by um, people in Maine that. President Obama initiate a national monument designation for land donated by Elliottsville Plantation. Three members of Maine's congressional delegation outlined nine conditions that the Obama administration should consider if it went forward with a designation. Those conditions include ensuring that traditional recreational activities, including hunting, fishing, camping, and the use of snowmobiles and all-terrain vehicles, as well as forest management, continue on the land. And again, quoting from this, they also stated, and this is the congressional delegation, that any monument designation, quote, must respect private property rights and ensure the federal government will never take any private land in the area by eminent domain. So my question to all of you as we wrap up, we've got about seven minutes left, um, are those the conditions that at least allow us to have the conversation as we go forward? Um, uh, first, you know, uh, Charlie, uh, are, are those the things that, that you're concerned about? If we were to resolve those things, could we continue to have the conversation until we resolve it? Again, I'll go back to my initial statement. One, I don't, uh, I support and advocate the state of Maine's responsibility. That's, that's why I co-sponsored the Lands for Maine's Future. It's why uh, we supported the We the State. Uh, that terminology is used by both sides that it's a state's opinion. In a general sense, a lot of those points that you made uh, from, the me, the, the well, from the delegation, right, from the delegation of right. you, you yep. re them, it came from conversations that they had with the municipal officials and the surrounding communities. A lot of the concerns that they heard being spoken by those in opposition, so they raised those to the to the park service, which chose to ignore answering those. Uh, I think today, it's in today's Bangor paper. Today, right. Uh, 
So, you know, the, here we are back to that same situation is how responsive is the national government listening to the local concerns? Okay. Like I said earlier in my previous dealings, our responsibility was the federal guidelines that we were given. We could not take into consideration what those various states were interested in and what their concerns were. But those are the things that are, are most need to be addressed, the things that the congressional delegation... Yes. Yep. Jim? Part of that, and that was uh, harvesting of timber that will never be allowed if the federal government owns it, I believe. For example, in the West, they used to harvest 10 billion feet a year on national forest land. They now harvest 1 billion a year because of environmental pressure. But right, if, if they don't allow us to harvest timber on this 150,000 acres, the average acre in Maine uh, produces 3,500 of a cord per year. Mm -hmm. So they should produce about 52,000 cords of wood. And each cord of wood in the state of Maine, value added is 12 $1,280. So you multiply that out. There's going to be a loss of $68 million a year to Maine's gross domestic product. How but much is that uh, as a percentage, do you suppose? Well, it's about 1%. Okay. We're an $8 billion industry, yep. and they say, well, we're only going to lose 1% of the wood. That's $80 million a year lost to our economy. I understand. No way is that pack going to make so, that up. But are those the, the, the uh, concerns raised by the congressional delegation, are those the things that have to be resolved? For the conversation to be Ab continued. absolutely okay. Yeah, uh, I, I concur. I think uh, I think it's a good position to have this kind of negotiation going on. Um, just and negotiations take a long time. I mean, this isn't anything that's going to be happening. Well, one never knows. Oh, okay. Uh, because the president has the authority to create a national monument, and uh, despite the uh, the attempts of Congressman Poliquin to disrupt that ability all across the United States, um, he can use it, and he's being encouraged to use it. And if you look at the history of our national parks, many of them have come from national monuments, including. Acadia. They are actions that are set up by the Antiquities Act of 1906 that allow the president to designate. And that's how we got, for starters, many of our national forests as well. So this is an important tool. It is not to be taken lightly. Remember, it's the last year of the presidency of uh, Barack Obama, effectively. And many presidents, history shows, do these designations at the last minute. He's done a great number of them already. So there's equal reason to think he might do something now. Is there going to be a friends group if, if such a park is created, Ken? I certainly hope so. Okay, last word, Jim, and then to Charlie. Very briefly. The, the, the eminent, uh, the, uh, the issue of the president being able to do that is right, but in my opinion, Bruce Poliquin is absolutely right in trying to stop it, because even the president of the United States, not one person, should ever have the right to take over land and affect the local people. Charlie, last word. I'll echo what Jim <laughs> said. I think he said it perfectly fine. Okay. I'll well, say the local people want it. Okay, thanks to all of you. We've come to that time when I want to remind you that this program was produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association. With offices in each county, Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. Join us from 10 to 11 on the second and fourth Friday mornings of each month for Talk of the Towns. Our theme music is a medley from Coronach on a Balmain House Highland music recording. Thanks to our guests in the studio, Charles Prey, former state senator from Millinocket, Jim Robbins, former president of Robbins Lumber, Ken Olson, conservation consultant and former president of Friends of Acadia, and Kathy Johnson by tape um, from the Northwoods. Uh, she's the Northwoods project director of the Natural Resources Council of Maine. Thanks to our underwriters, Thanks so much to Amy Brown for engineering our program, and stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning.